Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome everybody to IGN Unfiltered. My name is Ryan McCaffrey. This is our monthly interview show where we sit down with the best, brightest, most interesting minds in the video game industry. Uh, my guest this month uh, needs no introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. Uh, Richard Garriott, you, uh, a.k.a. Lord British, Indeed. creator of the Ultima series, uh, as well as now Shroud of the Avatar, your current project. You've been to outer space. We're going to talk about all that. You're here. Uh, you've written a book, sir. It is called Explore, Create... My Life in Pursuit of New Frontiers, Hidden Worlds, and the Creative Spark. Uh, and there are a million great stories in here, Richard. And actually, uh, there are so many good stories, I'm not even going to start with your gaming career. Okay. I am curious, uh, you said you, in your book that you used to be big into setting up haunted houses. And so uh, you, you actually wrote in the book, it was not unreasonable at all for the person inside that cage that you'd set up in, in, the, mm -hmm. in said haunted house to think they were going to die. A thought, by the way, that we greatly encouraged. And then you mentioned that uh, people wetting themselves in your haunted house was your measure of success. You're kind of a prankster, aren't you? Oh, definitely. You know, in fact, <laughs> you know, these haunted houses that I did, that's actually, in many ways, uh, is the forerunner to... Uh, everything from my gaming, like paper gaming with Dungeons and Dragons, yeah. is definitely a forerunner to the computer games, uh, and uh, and that prankster attitude pervades my life, you know, to this day, where uh, family, friends, and employees are are not free from uh, uh, well orchestrated pranks. Although I become the target also quite commonly as well these days. Oh, I, I I've got to hear uh, a, a good story or two because you mentioned you've you mentioned stuff with pyrotechnics and fire and uh, what's what's the most freaked out you ever got somebody in one of your haunted houses oh well the yeah the haunted houses were extreme and and a, as you noted we would um, you know I put these on for free they were never anything I charged yeah. money for and so uh, as opposed to most haunted houses where you put through as many people as you can to charge whatever you need to to pay for whatever you've spent right you know ours were sort of the exact opposite economically I'd spend whatever I chose to and we'd only let as few people through as it could handle sure. well. And so, generally speaking, once you started in, you're on an hour-long adventure for just you, and you never saw other people in front of you or behind <laughs> you. And so you felt very alone, uh, and we put up these physical challenges for you to get past. You might have to literally paddle or swim or climb or swing on a rope across a chasm. <laughs> uh, but, the, but the biggest scares were things like fire, where uh, we used this oil well, oil well fire simulator that would send, you know, 100-foot flaming, rolling donuts of fire into the sky while you're barricaded in by walls of fire that are created by propane uh, burners from hot air balloons. Yeah. And, and the sand you're walking through has been so impregnated with oil that has fallen out of the sky that it is also on fire. So you're walking through <laughs> lacy fire, bounded to stay close to this central effect by walls of fire right. as these explosions are going off over your head. 
And, uh, you know, that, this is one example of these pretty extreme environments. How uh, did no one ever sue you? Did you make people sign waivers before <laughs> we, they came in? We did make people sign waivers, <laughs> although I did actually have somebody uh, serve me once who, who twisted their ankle on a swing once. Uh, but, uh, but shockingly, yeah, we never really had any serious injuries. So that was while you were an adult after you uh, had some success. But I want to go back to your, to your childhood uh, for a minute because... It sounded like in the book that your parents were pretty cool people. Your, your dad was an astronaut. Uh, they just sounded like they were very supportive of your creativity because you write in the book that you used to take stuff around the house, just take it, disassemble it, and then try to put it back together. And usually fail to put it back together. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, I was definitely the person in the house who, when any new technological thing came in, a record player or a piece of electronics, uh, I would almost immediately disassemble it and tear it down to its base components and then use, for example, the motors out of a turntable to make uh, my Ferris wheel operate of my Lego or Tinker Toy right. constructed devices. <laughs> then I'd get yelled at, I'd go try to put those parts back and inevitably I, I never was successful. And some of those earliest creations I still have. I mean, literally, I have a Lego submarine on my desk at my home right now that uh, is hollowed out in the rear that I could put some uh, batteries in and a little motor that I stole out of some other device that, uh, that I had disassembled as a kid that I keep to this day, except my four-year-old recently disassembled part of it and I had to remember how to put it all back together. <laughs> uh, you also tell a story. You used to impress your friends by lighting your hand on fire. Yeah, that's a, don't do this at home, kids. <laughs> don't do this at home. Don't do what I did. But yeah, because this is, as part of this experimental, experimental age, um, uh, I don't remember how, if, if a friend showed me this or how we learned this, but this little group of pyro friends that I had in my neighborhood, we had learned, and you can do this, if you take a can of lighter fuel, if you put a little dot of it on the ground and light it, you can actually touch the lighter fuel and you'll pick up a little tiny bit of it in your finger and it will evaporate at about the rate it burns. Mm -hmm. And so your finger actually does not get hot. Well, once you realize you can do that, you, of course, dip it deeper, dip it deeper, dip it deeper, and you actually realize that you can actually dip your hand in lighter fuel, and it will actually burn without burning you until you get to the last layer. That final layer that's no longer left any room for evaporation suddenly gets hot, and so you have to, you have to be prepared to put it out uh, appropriately. So that's, again, don't try don't this at do home. It. Don't do this at home. But, but I did. These were the sort of uh, uh, dangerous experiments I would run as a child. So you are pictured on the cover of the book in your full astronaut gear here. Uh, you did go to space. That is, uh, I did. That has become every bit of, I think, a calling card for you as, as yeah. your game development career. And I just have a bunch of questions because you are the first astronaut I've ever had the pleasure of meeting, let alone interviewing. Yeah, and, and as you know, my father is also an astronaut, so I'm the yes. only second-generation American, and uh, I was the 483rd person to leave the Earth. Which is, I, I almost wouldn't have thought it was that many, but uh, well, having still grown up with it, it is a, it's still pretty. Compared to the population of, of, of the Earth, is still very small. But uh, but of course, you know, I grew up around it with my, not only my father, but. My right-hand neighbor uh, was Joe Engel, another astronaut. Left-hand neighbor, Hoot Gibson, another astronaut. And all of the people that you think of from the uh, Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo era live within a few blocks. Yeah, you grew up in Houston. Yeah, and so all my neighbors were, if not astronauts, they were all engineers involved in putting people into space. And so my, my own household and all of my neighbors' households were constantly filled with these experiments 
you know, not the things I disassemble. I wouldn't disassemble the NASA product, the NASA materials. <laughs> but those were always around all the time. So it was a very inspirational place. So did did you always want to go to space because your dad's an astronaut and that's sort of what you grew up as? Wow, that's that's what dad does. Well, you know, it's interesting. I think every kid grows up believing they want to be an archaeologist and an astronaut or if you're a fireman or a policeman, these sort of things. And I think I had the same brief uh, thoughts, but I never, it was never sort of my life's goal to become an astronaut professionally. For me, it was when I was about 13 years old, uh, one of the NASA doctors told me that because I needed glasses, I was uneligible to be a NASA astronaut. And that to me at the age of 13 was like being kicked out of the club that you just assumed everyone was a member of. I just right. assumed we were yeah. all going to go to space. I didn't have to decide. We just all do, right? Everybody in the neighborhood did. Everybody does. Yeah. Everybody goes to space. And so I was sort of kicked out of this club before I really had the chance to decide if that's what I wanted to go do. And that moment made me decide, well, you know, who is that doctor going to be the gatekeeper of space? If I can't go by that person's rules, I'm going to make my own rules, build my own space program, which, of course, you know, at the age of 13, you don't do much about. But, uh, but ultimately, that's what I did. Yeah, I mean, your story of just even getting to space is probably as interesting as being in space itself. Uh, you had very dangerous surgery in order to be able mm. to go into surgery that's completely... Uh, medically unnecessary by uh, Terran standards. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. In fact, um, you know, of all these ups and downs of trying to get myself into space, you know, 13-year-old told you can't go. First start selling games. I start backing other astronauts as they depart to, and those, a bunch of those companies fail. Finally build this company, Space Adventures. We negotiate with Russia. We manage to get it arranged to go, and the stock market crashes. We, you know, I, I finally, Which, you know, you had a lot of money tied up there from it, your the internet. EA days. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, so I, so even though I finally managed to arrange a ticket, I couldn't pay for the ticket that I just arranged because of the stock market collapse. Finally, in 2008, I'm now prepared to go again. Another market collapse is occurring. But more importantly, I've now paid, you know, tens of millions of dollars to Russia, which I will not get back. Right. And I get this phone call from Russia saying, we have found a medical anomaly which will disqualify from you space flight, from space flight. I'm very sorry, thank you for the money, but you can't go. And, and I'm, I'm floored. I mean, I'm, you know, I've, I've spent 30 You're years a healthy in guy. this. I'm a healthy guy. And unfortunately, uh, I get a call about two hours later saying, well, we have a plan. And the plan is you have to go in for this major surgery on Monday. And this is like a Thursday afternoon. And um, <clears throat> what the problem was, is I had one lobe of my liver, a lobe of your liver nominally has an artery that feeds it and a vein that drains it. I was missing one vein. And so I have one lobe of my liver that is sort of a dead end blockage and just doesn't function. And on Earth, who cares? Right. But if there was a depressurization of a spacecraft because of a collision, which has happened, that depressurization could create internal bleeding, which you couldn't detect. And even if you could detect it, you couldn't fix it while you're in space, and so you would die. And the, what they called me up and said was, if you, if you go to surgery on Monday and remove that section of your liver, and then you can survive these high-G centrifuge runs without any other things happening internally, then we can pass you. And so I was like, sign me up. And the, uh, you know, the doctor I went to see was, you know, his sincere advice, he said, Richard, I have to tell you, as a professional, as a doctor, my advice to you is don't go. Because this is life, life-threatening surgery. You can live out the rest of your life here on Earth and, you know, and wouldn't care. Uh, but it says, you know, if you insist, I will do it, and I will have to consider it sort of a professional requirement 
that you have the surgery just to you know rationalize it from his perspective as not inappropriate to give me the surgery. But I have a scar now that goes from my sternum to my belly button to the side of my body that I often will show off. Uh, it's a party trick, uh, you know. When uh, to and it to, was like a year recovery. You said in the book. Uh, well, I only had three months before I had to start training. So within three months, I had to. In fact, within a month and a half, I had to do these centrifuge runs, nine G centrifuge runs, which was also problematic and also had some medical issues show up during. So it was, it was really very touch and go that they would let me do it. But it, but it was. Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm overweight at the moment, but, it, you know, post-surgery I was underweight by 20 pounds, 30 pounds, huh. uh, that they also were concerned about just because of how much weight I lost just to the surgery. Yeah. So, uh, were you terrified to go to space? I mean, I'm, I'm already discerning that the answer is no, considering what you were willing to go through to get there, but when you're, when you're sitting there in the rocket and it's, you're looking up, uh, does, does fear set in at all? You know, honestly, not not only no for me, but I actually don't think most people would find the launch process scary. I mean, you're 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 aware of the risks. I mean, uh, and there are there there are two points where people might think of it as scary. Like, if you are at all claustrophobic, you will not like getting in a Soyuz. A Soyuz is so small to cram into, and I'm I'm an avid caver as well. And there are there are caves that are small enough they're psychologically uncomfortable even to me, who's not claustrophobic. Well, the Soyuz is pretty crammed. Uh, and the next kind of most awesome time is when you're on the outside of the rocket getting ready to board it because you're standing next to this vehicle that is full of cryogenic oxygen and so there's frost all over the outside of it. Moisture coming near it is condensing and streaming down the sides of it. The whole thing is creaking and groaning and popping you know, as it all adjusts to its temperature. Yeah. And when you stand there and look up at this thing that, you're, that you eventually go climb up and get inside of, that's a moment where you go like, "This is a bomb." You know, this is literally, you know, would 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 devastate you know kilometers around it if yeah. it, if something were to go wrong right now. And during the countdown, you of course, uh, you know, statistically, you know, things are probably going to go just fine. But as you're going through the checklist, you're still have a part of your brain is going, "What will it feel like if the escape tower hit launches?" Right? You know, there's going to be this bam if that happens. There'd be a kick. And so there's part of you that sort of trying to feel what's happening around you just to make sure nothing anomalous has occurred. But, but the actual launch sequence itself is actually very smooth, very elegant, very blissful. Uh, you know, uh, nothing about it was, there's no shaking or bangs or, or violence. And I mean, so it's, it's very beautiful. You probably can't go on roller coasters anymore at this point in your life, or at least get any thrill out of them. No, I actually really love, I really <laughs> love roller coasters. And by the way, a roller coaster is not a bad comparable in the sense of, you know, if you go over, you know, the first drop on a big roller coaster uh, is close to zero G, you know, on the way down. And the pull-up is about three and a half to four and a half Gs, which is exactly what it is on a rocket. <laughs> and in a rocket, uh, you're lying on your back compared to sitting up on a roller coaster. So it's actually more comfortable in the rocket <laughs> than it is on a roller coaster. And roller coasters also tend to be violent and kind of throw you up and down and left and right, which a rocket doesn't do. It's kind of slow, continuous pressure uh, on your chest. So it's... Uh, <laughs> uh, you know that you are moving really fast, you're accelerating really fast because you feel this incredible amount of load, this weight on your chest that stays. gravity crushing you because you're trying to escape There's it. an elephant sitting on your chest <laughs> and that lasts for about eight and a half minutes, but only eight and a half minutes. You know, I just flew here today from New York and you know, the, when you lift off from a runway till, you, till they turn off the seatbelt sign is more than eight and a half minutes. It might be, you know, 10 or 15 yeah. minutes. And so it, it, it's shorter to go to orbit, which is only 250 miles up, 
than it is to get to altitude on a modern jetliner. Huh. Uh, how about re-entry then? Because that, that would be, in my, in my head, that would be the other super terrifying time. Like, okay, we did it, I was in space, but oh no, now I have to come back. How's this going to go? <laughs> well, you are correct that that is the other uh, statistically hazardous time. I mean, no one's actually ever died in space. The people have only died on the pad on the way up yeah. or the way down. And uh, so you're aware of the fact that reentry is the other extreme event. And, uh, and, and what's interesting about that is as soon as the capsule reenters at all, as soon as you even touch the uppermost part of the atmosphere where the, the number of molecules that you're encountering are still very small. So there's no resistance. You don't, if you were to float a marble in front of you, it would still float. Yet those atoms you're hitting, you're hitting at 17,000 miles an hour. And that is literally ripping the molecules apart. And that's creating a plasma that is hotter than the surface of the sun. And so immediately the vehicle is, 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 is surrounded by this red glowing plasma wow. and the vehicle begins to melt. And you see the heat shield kind of melting away out the window and you still don't feel it and you don't hear any sound of wind whistle or anything. But the fact that the vehicle is melting is sort of a... A little terrifying. Hmm, you know, that's a... That's kind of an you, you, that's kind of an extreme place to be, uh, you know, with your shoulder sitting just a you know there's a few panes of glass and quartz and things that separate me from the sun basically, and uh, uh, and yet it's still you know it's not hot on the inside it's uh, quite cozy and uh, uh, but uh, but intellectually you, you do understand that it's it's dangerous but but again it doesn't it's not there's no violent shaking right. no loud noises or bangs so it's still very uh, you know comfortable. So what is the most interesting or weird thing about, I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, what's the weirdest or most interesting thing about being in space that, that us, uh, those of us that haven't been, which is most of us, have just never even <coughs> considered, that, that, that sort of surprised you when you got there? Well, there were lots of surprises. I mean, there, there are things that I expected that were as great as I would have hoped, like floating around in zero gravity is phenomenal. I mean, uh, and I've had zero-G flights where you get a little 30-second taste of it, but... Flying around like Superman 24 hours a day, seven days a week is, is just incredible. And the view out the window back at the Earth is also just incredible. But there are things that would happen, uh, uh, both real and imagined in the sense of dreams, uh, that, were, that were unexpected and kind of interesting. For example, when you're asleep at night or right as you're falling asleep, you know, you're, you're exposed to very heavy radiation while you're in orbit. The... the a lot of these subatomic particles from the solar wind are destroyed as they enter the atmosphere. But they're, they're not while you're in space. And so instead, they go through your body. And uh, that's a risk for you, this radiation exposure. But it also has an effect you can detect in real time periodically, which is that every now and then, one of these subatomic particles will go through either the retina on the back of your eye or some structure in your brain associated with vision. They're not really sure which. But the net result of it is you see it. And so huh. you'll be here lying in a quiet, dark state, you know, relaxed, and suddenly, the way, at least the way I would describe it is, it's like you're looking at a, 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 a pixel on a monitor that goes dead by first going super bright and then <laughs> fading out to nothing. And, and it wakes you up, you're going like, wow, you know, whatever just happened, you know, some, some, something important, some neuron was just obliterated in my brain. <laughs> And, uh, and you're like, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure you want to stay out here forever. So but that happens a few times, you know, on the trip. So, okay, that's what I was going to ask. So, like, once a day, but it sounds like every a few, few days. So every few days, usually at night as you're trying to go to sleep. So, yeah, you're, you're up for 12 days, is that correct? Mm -hmm. So, do you, were there any mornings where you woke up and for a second 
forgot you were in space or, or like, oh my gosh, that's right, I'm in space right now? Uh, well, yeah, well, the, the whole time you're in space is a bit of a blur in the sense of you're so excited to be there and the senses are so overwhelming that I find it very hard to go to sleep. And and then if you're and if you're not and if you're not feeling like you can be asleep, you don't want to just be sitting here wasting the time doing nothing. And so you're motivated to go look out a window or just get, there's so much to see. You know, so you're so you're you're constantly in this. You know, I need to go see things. But there were these times where uh, uh, where you where, where these kind of th- things about to describe would happen, like. Uh, I love to go take pictures of sunrises and sunsets because you get those once every 45 minutes, right? You're going around the oh, earth. Wow. You're going all the way around the earth in 90 minutes, which means there's a sunrise or sunset every 45 minutes. But most all the windows aim straight down. There's no windows that aim at the sky, uh, the space above you. All of them aim down except for a few that aimed at the peripheral. And so I would go to the Russian airlock where it had some forward and aft facing windows to take pictures of sunrise and sunset. And I'd take my camera and I'd, you know, I'd you know, have some pockets and things I'd kind of attach and I'd better carry more extra gear and extra lenses. And I'd go down there and sit by the window and I'd take my pictures of, let's say, sunset. Well, as soon as the sunset, you have to understand that in space, you're either in the sunlight, in which case it is incredibly bright, or you're in darkness, in which case it is incredibly black. And there's nothing in between, really. I mean, except for the you know, few moments of sunset itself, which goes very quickly. And so I would constantly forget that once it goes black, I'm, I'm stuck. Because I'm in this room where not only have I brought more gear than I can now find as it floats around and bounces off the walls, but they also store stuff in here like empty spacesuits that are floating around or hatches <laughs> that are floating around. And so you're in this dark kind of minefield, uh, asteroid field you might think of it as, swimming weightlessly through the sea of things like bodies and metal hatches and incredibly surreal. And that's what I would have for dreams. Like that moment, I had dreams both in space and on the ground, this kind of swimming through asteroid fields of debris in Hmm. space. Uh, I've got to ask you about your uh, your pooping in space story that you oh, yeah. <laughs> that you told in the book because it's just like I don't think any of us really think about that but it turns out it's a whole ordeal and also that it's the forces on your body are such that uh, you don't need to go as often but when you do it's you time. You really gotta go a lot. <laughs> yeah well you know what's funny is there's actually books you can go buy on the internet a, there's a book called you know how to go to the bathroom in space and other stories and and the story they, that almost every astronaut tells about going to space is they tell the story of the way you were trained to go to bathroom in space. No one other than myself, to my knowledge, tells the actual story <laughs> of how troubling it is to go to the bathroom in space. Uh, you know, the, 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 the simple version of it, first with the training version, and if you read How to Go to the Bathroom in Space book, this is what it will say. You know, the, the toilet is sort of like a small uh, telephone booth. It has a receptacle for solid waste. It has a receptacle for liquid waste. A bunch of switches and knobs that I'll ignore for now, but it's actually fairly complicated to turn it on and off hmm. for reasons of zero gravity. Uh, but basically, it's a, a, a funnel you pee into for liquid waste, waste sure. which works fine, and that's easy. But the solid waste receptacle is the problem. And it's a, a basically a, a, a beer keg bolted to the floor with a shoebox size toilet seat with a lid and uh, a receptacle about the size of your water bottle uh, that uh, fits down inside of it with a plastic bag with a rubber band that holds it at the top. The plastic bag goes down into the shoebox and has perforations in the bottom. And the same vacuum hose you could have peed into is attached to the bottom of it. 
So in theory, if I were to release M&Ms, for example, above this, airflow would pull those M&Ms into the plastic bag. Okay. Then you could release the top of the plastic bag. It would be sealed by the rubber band. It would fall into the beer keg, and you'd put a new plastic bag for the next user. That's how you go to the bathroom in space. Okay. So that's the official way. The problem is, first, you haven't gone to the bathroom in a long time because your GI tract slows down when you're in space because you're not gravity's not helping it. You're not walking around in ways that help it. So when you finally do need to go, you're you've got you know five or six you're, days of backup. Yeah, you're backed up. <laughs> and uh, and when you begin to use you know situate over this uh, plastic bag, uh, you know a uh, a column of you know I, I'd like to use toothpaste as the metaphor. You know. Imagine toothpaste squeezing out of a tube. Yeah, it's easy to picture. You know, but but <laughs> but you know, if you think on on Earth, if I were to squeeze toothpaste out of a tube over my sink, you know, gravity would bend it down toward the sink, and eventually, after ten grams or so was out, it would gravity would pull break that off, off, break it yeah. off, and fall in. But if you do that in zero gravity, it'll just stay there, right? And so, you know, in, in gra- without gravity, you know, if I try to move the toothpaste tube away from the toothpaste, the toothpaste comes with it. And so, when you sit over this container and you begin to go to the bathroom, you you quickly create a column to the bottom of the bag. And if you try to continue, it just sort of spreads out on your backside. And you're going like, ah, that's not comfortable, and it's probably going to make a mess, so you know, what do I do? And everybody sort of figures out the next move, which is kind of give a bounce, because that tends to break things, you know, like shaking the toothpaste off the tube. Uh, but now you have an obstruction in the bag. Oh, no. And so you try, you start again, but now you have the same problem happening, but very, even sooner, you know, half as long. And you're going, well, now what do you do? And the only other things other than you in this room are uh, baby wipes, which is your equivalent of, of, uh, of, of toilet paper, yeah. rubber gloves in case you needed it, uh, and the more of those plastic bags for, you know, for installing for the next user. And you realize that like, you, know, you could clean up, discard that bag, and do this process over and over again, but that would take dozens of bags and use up the supply on the space station. And so instead, everybody figures it out. You, you put on the rubber glove, get out some wet wipes, and you sort of manually <laughs> manipulate things out of the way to continue, and then you kind of repeat this process. And it takes you like 45 minutes. And wow. so by the time I got out, you know, you're, I'm sweating. It's a whole you know, production. I've used, used all the stuff. And the other crimmer's like, <laughs> I guess you figured it out. And, and it's really hilarious that, one, no one ever talks about it. Two, no one's made a better toilet. After millions, years and years and millions and millions of dollars being spent on toilets, I could go through the pantheon of toilets that have been invented for space, and they're all worse than the one I just described. That's still the best toilet. In fact, the newest toilet up there is a new uh, American toilet, but what they did is bought a Russian toilet and added water recycling to it, urine recycling to it. But otherwise, it's a Russian toilet. It's still the state of the art. So you're probably happy to only have to go every few or several days. <laughs> yeah, so I think I, I think I made three uh, solid waste uh, Deposits, and uh, that was enough. <laughs> <sighs> the things, the things we don't think about in space. Yeah. Uh, would you go back if you got the opportunity to? Space? In a heartbeat. I mean, I'd you know, if somebody came knocking the door and said, you know, there's a vehicle waiting right now, I'd I'd go, uh, even over the objections of my wife and kids. So uh, I didn't have a wife or kids at the time, and so now I do. You know, I should do need to consider their uh, concerns as well. And you know, my wife has asked me to you know at least wait till the kids are old enough to remember me before I go take that kind of a danger. But I actually am fairly circumspect about it in the sense of not only did I grow up with it, but I also believe the statistics are better than most people think. It, you know, it, it's not as nearly as safe as you and me sitting here right now, yeah. but uh, uh, it's not as dangerous as uh, uh, you know, a lot of activities we do walking around on the streets of New York these days. 
Uh, you mention another spacefarer in your book briefly, and in fact, you have a, a quote <coughs> from him on the back of the book, Elon Musk, mm -hmm. who uh, I'm a big fan of. How do you, uh, is it through the, you know, he, he obviously is the CEO of SpaceX as well as Tesla. How do you, uh, how do you buddy up and, and get to know Elon Musk? Well, Elon actually is a gamer, first he of is. all, and yeah. uh, you know he uh, he and his kids nowadays are are also big gamers, and so he's played my games and a lot of the other games in our industry. And uh, I uh, met him uh, about the same time that I met my wife. Uh, you know, uh, uh, on, it turns out in this case on, on vacation, and it's where I met my wife in the Caribbean. Uh, but uh, very quickly, not not only hit it off because we're both into space and games and other things that are common interest. Uh, but uh, also with his young kids, I like these haunted houses. I'm also big into things like geocaching and stuff like this. And on this island where I met my wife and him, uh, I would set up geocaches for now his kids and my kids. That's cool. And so we have a, we have a good time together gaming. Uh, if I interpreted the passage correctly in the book, you said that you uh, could have gone on a space walk if you'd paid more money. True. So... When you're 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 already you're already up there and you're paying the price, uh, why not take the upsell? Why not take the spacewalk? Well, oh, I would have. I actually intended to. So, oh. it, but the, the problem was I literally couldn't afford it. I mean, oh, uh, well, that's well, it, it, which is you know, which is one of the ironies of this of the up and down part of this tale, is uh, y you know, even even when I was going to college for before I dropped out of college, it was ironic to see people like, uh, for example, Buzz Aldrin came to see me in my dorm room at the University of Texas to pitch me on investing in his private space venture, which was the ability to have boosters from rockets uh, return with wings as opposed to being expended, which, by the way, is a very good idea. It was a good idea then. It's still a good idea today. Well, Elon's uh, landing Elon's rockets. Land now he's doing it with controls. I mean, back in those days, we couldn't have done it. There was not enough computer controlling yeah. to do back then. But that was so. Even as a kid, it's pretty surreal to have your childhood heroes and neighbors, you know, coming by saying, "Hey, only kid in the neighborhood who's made any money. How would you like to invest in my <laughs> ability to do this privately?" And so I've been investing to try to get my way into space forever. And you know, I, I had the money to go when we convinced the Russians to take private citizens, and the Knox stock market crashed. I had the money to go when I did go. But literally, just as I was starting to pay, is when the 2008 market crashed. And so when I started down that journey, I had enough to not only pay for, easily pay for the flight and easily pay for a spacewalk, but then also would have remained wealthy you know, for the rest of my life afterwards had the 2008 meltdown not happened. And, uh, uh, and I actually saw it coming, but I had my, all my value was in a Korean stock, which you, you're not allowed to, for technical reasons, you're not allowed to what's called call or a stock. I couldn't, they didn't want me to sell it, and I couldn't buy an instrument to hedge it. Uh, legally, so I didn't, and therefore I almost couldn't take the flight at all. It did mean I didn't get to make the spacewalk, and it also meant that when I returned to the Earth right after my space flight, I was broke again. So Jeez. I've I've had this happen. I've had this up and down cycle, you know, multiple times. I've been, you know, I've never had to declare bankruptcy, but I have, you know, come basically to zero, uh, at least a few times. Well, at least now you've got an incentive to go back to space, is to take the spacewalk, right? That's right. Yeah, well, and, uh, you know, the good news is that, uh, you know, when we, if you're interested in space, that, uh, and about 80% of people on Earth, by the way, if you ask them, would say, I would love to go if I could afford it. Um, you know, it used to be only governments could go. We're the only private company, the first private company that began to take people into space, still the only. 
But when we did it at first, because we're buying from a government uh, who really, frankly, wasn't that interested in flying. Yeah, they uh, got, you wrote that NASA tried to acti yeah. actively stop it, you from going, <laughs> which is all in the book. You should exactly. read the book. Uh, but, uh, but also the cost is very high. So it was tens of millions, still tens of millions to go with, uh, with Russia. And even when SpaceX first starts to carry people, it will still be tens of millions. But with these reusable rockets, as SpaceX is proving they can do quite well, the price should come down to ones of millions. And the price previously with the space shuttle was a hundred million. And so we're already down a hundred times cheaper. Wow. And that's still a lot of money, but a hundred times cheaper means a lot more people could consider it. And there's technology like my wife has been involved in, in uh, uh, helping to promote uh, where you, instead of carrying the fuel with you, you use externally beamed propulsion or energy, externally beamed energy for the propulsion. And, uh, and that should bring it down by another factor of 10. And so we're entering a time where the price is coming down very, very, very rapidly. And so even though uh, I don't expect or I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to prove or predict that I can afford to put the amount of money into a second trip that I did into my first trip, even for a spacewalk, uh, but I do believe the price is coming down so fast that uh, it'll all be fine because by the time the price gets down to where I can afford it again, my kids will be old enough, my wife will let me, and, uh, and the price will be cheap enough to where it won't be a big deal. We'll, we'll take a whole family. So before I move on to your video game career, uh, which is not normally video games what we do here at IGN, but of course we do love science and technology as well. Uh, you also wrote a very fascinating story about uh, taking a high-tech submarine of sorts yeah. to the bottom of the ocean to go look at the Titanic remains. That's true. And you almost got stuck there. <laughs> uh, you actually did, did get stuck there. Did, in fact. And you, uh, you were contemplating death for a short time down That's there. True. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so uh, uh, most of your viewers have probably seen uh, the movie Titanic. And that was filmed using these two submersibles called Mir-1 and Mir-2 that are owned by the Russian Academy of Sciences. And uh, that's another uh, uh, company that I've been a partner in. is called Deep Ocean Expeditions. And they charter these two submersibles. And in fact, uh, James Cameron chartered those subs for that movie from our company, Deep Ocean Expeditions. And so we used, you know, he went down to the Titanic to film the movie. We took the same subs to go down to see the Titanic ourselves. And, uh, and I've also used those same subs to go twice to hydrothermal vents and once on an uh, expedition to do uh, archaeology and, and recovery uh, 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 down to a ship uh, off in the Atlantic. Cool. Uh, so I've done these subs quite a bit. But what's interesting about these subs is as with other exploration I do, whether it's Antarctic, space, or subs, or others, you know, I'm a big believer of you need to know everything about this. You know, I'm, I don't go as just a vacationer. You know, I go as an expedition. Yeah. Off part of the crew. Part of the crew. The same thing's true in the case of the submarines. And so I learned those submarines in detail. While I was not the driver, I, if the driver had become incapacitated, I could have easily uh, taken over if required. I knew all the safety systems. I knew all the life support systems, all the uh, acoustic radios. And, uh, and so it, it's an incredibly safe vehicle. It seems. <laughs> until, Unless you get wedged under the... Until you go down underneath the tail, of the, under the stern of the Titanic, which means the majority of the mass of the Titanic is above you. And in our case, we bumped into the Titanic. And the Titanic is rusting into pieces. And so all of this debris goes on top of us. And so now we're going, uh-oh. Because uh, you can, the submarine, you can eject anything that's sticking out the propellers, the remote manipulating arms, the sample trays, battery packs, lead weights that you carry just because nickel shot weights you carry, all that stuff can be dumped. So you become incredibly positively buoyant. 
But if you're sitting under the Titanic, you're not, you're not floating. You're not anyway. going up through it. And it turns out that the uh, your intercom, your radios, are acoustic, which is line of sight. So again, no one can hear you. And your last line of defense is a buoy you can send up, but if you're underneath you're the, <laughs> the buoy, can't go anywhere. And uh, and then you go, oh look, we are literally now stuck, literally, literally. And then you go, hmm, how much time do we have? You know, you've got about two or three days of of CO2 scrubbing and oxygen, uh, plenty of water, but then that's it. And even if they could find you. With the way the Titanic on you, the other sub, even if they figured out that's where you were, which is going to be hard to figure out, but even if they did, there's no way they're going to clear off the Titanic. <laughs> and, uh, and so that was an interesting moment to realize, wow, you know, just like the people who were in the Titanic originally feeling so confident in the unsinkability of their vehicle, you know, here, uh, here we are, are sitting under the tail of the Titanic, uh, having just in a moment defeated all the safety equipment. But you were able to, it was the... the once all the, because your, your lights were obscured by all the sort of Debris. dust that was yeah, kicking up, once, once you were able to regain yeah. vision, you, you were able to kind of see yeah. that you Fortunately, could... what came down on us was n- nothing heavy. Uh, none of the big iron girders or panels came down on top of us. Mostly it was the rusticles and other very fine, uh, lightweight things that could disintegrate. And so we just sat there for a couple of hours to let it all settle out. And then try to lift ever so slightly, which we could, and then we just rotated in place, just you know, bumping on the mud on the bottom until we then could scoot out uh, past this berm, that's, which we were trying to get over in the first place, the way we hit the Titanic, uh, and then turn back around to see what we had done. And, and it, it was all right. I mean, it turns out there was, it was really just a bang, uh, but uh, we actually broke a bumper off of the, a titanium bumper off the rear of the sub we, sub we had broken. Uh, but uh, but otherwise the vehicle was not harmed and the Titanic was not really harmed. What was seeing the remains of the Titanic everything you hoped it would be? Yeah, you know what's interesting is um, uh, it was an amazing trip, uh, and you know and especially amazing was you know we sat and had lunch on the deck of the Titanic literally, the the scenes you see in the movie like you know the submarine will just fit into the grand staircase so you can look down those hallways and see the chandeliers hanging. Wow. But uh, so it was like the movie. It was it was a lot like the movie. But the movie did a very good job of showing you what it would like to be there. I mean, it's very uh, comparable. And and while some of the people on the trip did you know feel this um, deep reverence for the grave site that it is represented, uh, but uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, it was a it was really a fascinating trip. That was my first submarine trip. So uh, now I do want to talk <coughs> to you about about video games. Uh, because you've had a heck of a career in that as well. I mean, we, we just we just talked about Richard Garriott, the explorer uh, of of Earth and space, but video games. You've you've uh, you're you're a role playing game pioneer. Uh, the Ultima series with Ultima Online, you helped uh, turn MMORPGs into a a viable and dominant genre, uh, and and you're still. Still going today with the Shroud of the Avatars, your, mm-hmm. your current project. Now, I had uh, Fergus Urquhart in here mm-hmm. from, from, of course, Obsidian, and he was telling me how he played a lot of pen and paper D&D when he was a kid, and, and you mentioned it in your book, too, that, that you did. So I'm curious, do you think, is it a uh, role-playing foundation that any aspiring RPG developer should have is to play to have played pen and paper D and D. Well, you know what's interesting about that is does it teach uh, you that sort of RPG design thought process or help help to? It it can. My my only pause uh, cause for pause is that um, you know when I first started playing D and D was at a very important time in pen and paper gaming, meaning it was also in its foundational era. 
And the rules, the rule books for pen and paper role-playing games were thin at best. And the adherence to the rules were close to zero. I mean, nobody really paid any attention to the rules, at least in the games that I played. And so you were, by being a player of early Dungeons and & Dragons and other role-playing games, Tunnels and Trolls and a few of these others were out back then, uh, you were sort of making up the rules yourself while also reading what they had written as rules. And so that, I think, was a great foundation for immediately moving in and trying to make these things on a computer. And for me, they happened almost simultaneously. I, 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 I read Lord of the Rings, began to play Dungeons & Dragons, and uh, encountered my first computers, in this case, teletypes, in the same year. Hmm. And so uh, I began to do all these things concurrently. Now, today, if I was going to you know, have somebody say, you know, what's the, what do I think is best for you to, to, how can you learn game design the easiest now, I'm not sure I'd still specifically push them at pen and paper role-playing games. But it might be. But now the rules are too big. I mean, the, 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 the standards are too well codified uh, in, many, in many cases. But, but what I think, is, what's interesting about paper gaming is, well, while D&D you know, was sort of the first decade or two dominant, I then think it went through in the, the next decade or two, it sort of got left behind by computer games. What I find fascinating about today is not only D&D, but lots of other pen and paper games, including pen and paper role-playing games, have re-emerged with a much stronger rule set. And actually, yeah. I think are not only better games to play, I enjoy playing them as a player much better than I did in the middle era, uh, but I think are also much more informative to uh, game designers today to realize how people can simplify these rules and really pull out the essence of something you can sit down, play around the table, get into it quickly without having to learn too much, and, and actually complete something versus have to play it three or four nights you know, in a row to really make any progress. So you, then you, you started just, you're, you're a one man. I mean, most games were made by one person back then. Mm -hmm. You start uh, figuring out everything. You're, you're writing the game, you're programming the game, you're doing uh, whatever art. art yeah, art you can. And you're, in fact, even selling the game yourself. You're, you're putting them in plastic bags and, mm -hmm. and selling them at uh, like the local, I guess, computer or hobby store. Yep. And so it's, it's a whole one-man thing, but you start to have some success with this. People start enjoying your games, and uh, you mentioned in your book, I, I found this really fascinating, so this is the early 80s, I believe. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that uh, drug use was just rampant oh, in yeah. your experience among, among game developers yeah. in, the, in the 80s. Uh, did you did you watch a lot of promising careers get ruined? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, so um, as you can imagine, you know, I, I grew up in this NASA extended family, and so uh, you know, I expect amongst the teenagers in my neighborhood there was probably some level of drug use, as there probably is in every neighborhood. But at least in my personal life experience, there had I'd really never seen any. You know, I saw some people drinking in high school, and maybe yeah. people smoking something in high school, but. Uh, but, but, that was, but that was very extremely limited and not prevalent by any means. But it was literally the first day I met my first publisher that I was then introduced not only to more serious drugs like cocaine, but in bulk. And then as I came out to do <laughs> interviews like this, when I, would, when I would come out here specifically to California and I would go to magazine interviews... It was not at all uncommon. I would actually say it was arguably half of the interviews I went to where I would go sit in a glass conference room in the middle of an office where the other employees could be watching through the glass yeah. and the owners and interviewers of the magazine would be scratching out lines of cocaine on the conference table 
for, you know, just having a bump prior to the interview we were about to do. And it was incredibly surreal to have come from this incredibly sheltered super science background. Right, well, all these scientists and astronauts around. And now you're in this completely wild, and even if, even if, you, even if you say, put the drug use aside, then let's just move on to the next level down, call it alcohol. The, the, the drunken debauchery that was also rampant amongst those who decided they didn't want the heavier drugs was also incredibly prevalent. And, you know, there were, you know, uh, principles of public gaming companies that were selling drugs to their employees. I mean, think about that. Think about, think about being, you know, that's, you're, that's like, that's you're the like. founder, majority owner of a public gaming company selling illegal drugs like to your employees. like Peter Moore coming in here and selling your cocaine. You're going, you're going, you have one disgruntled employee, they're going to put you in jail forever. You know, and so it was, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was shocking, shocking. Uh, and it went on all through the 80s. It, it, it's, it, around, it ran its course, and uh, you know, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything like that since. But, uh, but yeah, the, the early mid-80s in the games industry in California yeah, you, was incredible. You mentioned your earliest publisher was a company called California Pacific. You talk about in the book that they were dealing cocaine, and they stopped paying their developers uh, in actual money, yeah. inc- including yourself. And... Uh, you tell a story about this, because this is extra funny to me, because I owned a DeLorean for 12 years. That was my dream car as a kid. They offered you the company DeLorean as payment if you would just keep making games for them. Yeah, that's, let, let me correct one minor detail, <laughs> which was this particular person wasn't dealing the cocaine. He was a user. Oh, okay. And, and it, but he, he, my first meeting was at his dealer's house, where he had a chest of drawers Full of literal bricks, the kind of things you see only, you know, I've only seen them since on the news. Yeah, Yeah. the real ones I've ever seen are, you know, a bag you cut open with your knife and they pull something out with their knife to do some purity tests. There were bricks of cocaine in this drawer, and that was the first time I'd ever seen, you know, uh, know, a a serious drug of any kind. Man, uh, so you're... You're having some success, though, despite the (laughs) attempts to to turn you into a drug addict. you said in your book that you were making about $150,000 a year selling your games as a high school senior. So you're about 17, 18 years old. And a, a, a passage I found really fascinating in the book is you admit that you became, quote, something of an asshole, <laughs> according to your friends who actually then confronted you about it and told you, hey, Richard, uh, and, and you sort of acknowledge it and own it. And I, I just, like, it, it takes a, a lot to acknowledge that and then, and then write it in a book and, and sort of have the self-realization to realize uh, what you've what you've turned into. Yeah, you know, in fact, uh, uh, yeah, but I think it's, uh, I think both sides of that are important um, in the sense of, um, you know, I, I was very lucky to, my very first game did, you know, for seven weeks of after school time, earned literally 150 grand when my dad's salary as an astronaut was less than half that. And, uh, and so that's when I st- that was right at the end of high school and right as I start college. So when I started in college and I met the pantheon of characters who are the main characters of Ultima, you know, Dupre, the, 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 valiant, the, 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 the valiant knight, and uh, uh, Mariah the mage who became my uh, assistant eventually, and uh, Jeffrey the fighter who became, he ran our op. So all, all these people are real people that I met and became my closest friends. And we were all also members of the thing called the SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism. And we would spend the weekends together doing play fighting with swords. And that we'd also often be out drinking or carousing or, yeah. you know, hanging out. And what I would, you know, I was really the only person in the group that had significant money. 
And what I felt like I was doing was just helping everybody have a nice time. So if, you know, I would occasionally bring a couple extra bottles of some nice liquor, or if we were out to eat, eat somewhere, I would, you know, pick up the tab. And it didn't feel like I was uh, acting braggadocious about it. Uh, it didn't, uh, it, it didn't, it didn't, you know, it, I just was trying, I, I felt like I was trying to be helpful to the inclusive fun yeah. of the whole group. But one time they pulled me all aside and they said, hey, Richard, you know, by the way, you know, we, we appreciate you a lot. We really do. And we, we understand you're trying to be nice here. But the net result of what you're doing is you've, you're, you're actually quashing anyone else's ability to be seen as, you know, the, uh, equal. Yeah. And in a way that distresses us. And it distresses us enough, and you clearly are not seeing it enough, where we're not going to be able to continue hanging around with you. And, you know, we talk about it now, you know, outside of you, and we really feel like we needed to tell you. You know, and, it, and at first when somebody comes to you with that kind of hard news, you know, your, your first reaction is to defensive, go, like, it's right? defensive. And so that was also, I don't remember what I literally said to them. I don't think it was rude or inappropriate. But, uh, but I'm sure that it, that night at home I was angry. But I then began to reflect on all the symptoms they would describe. And I went, wow, you know, they're really right. And, uh, and that was, a, I think, a very important moment where if they had not done that and instead had just sort of wandered off, I could have become a bigger ego like I saw a lot of my other early people become. And so if you, if you look back at other people who were also lived through the same infinite wealth, lots of opportunities for drugs and women <laughs> and, and the sort of behavior, some of them did go that way. Uh, and and I think that one of the main reasons I didn't is because I had my friends who who came here and said, "Look, you know, you, you chill." <laughs> what did uh, What did your parents think when you're pulling in twice as much as dad from making uh, what again computer games in a time <clears throat> when that was unheard of? You know, and computer games were a, a toy at best, probably right. So yeah, yeah what what are your what does your family think of, at that point? Well, what's interesting is the. The you know I come from a very well educated you know family who's very career oriented, but they all saw my this kind of strange hobby that I had. Not only immediately began to pay well, but then began to rocket upwards from there, uh, and, and it went up fast. And at that same time, as a student at the University of Texas, my grade point average and interest in school, and frankly even just showing up for class, dropped off very fast. And two and a half years into college, so your first two years of college are just you know foundational undergraduate stuff. Only in my junior year did I begin to take anything that was interesting. And in this case, uh, one one class worth noting was I took a sixty-eight oh nine programming class. And so I am professionally at night programming on a sixty-five oh two as arguably one of the best programmers on earth in some sense of the word. And I'm taking a class in the SQL processors, the 6809, which have almost the same instruction set. But this one has the, the new one has a few more. And I flunked the class. And I flunked it because even though I could do any of the assignments almost instantaneously, I would fail to use the advanced syntax of the new processor. Mm. I'd use the old processor's instructions. And, uh, and, those, and that was enough to fail the class. And so to me, that was this like, wow, I, I can't both do this as a job and pursue this in school. And so I came home, you know, prepared for the painful chat with parents of, hey, I think I'm going to go drop out of school 
to go make games for a living. Uh, and what happened was quite interesting. My parents, on the one hand, were like, we get it. This, wow. you know, this totally makes sense. You know, a college degree will not earn you this kind of money. And, but the other part of that was, sure, you should go do this right now. But as soon as this windfall runs its course, because there's no way this can continue. <laughs> it's unsustainable. It's not sustainable. And so when this runs its course, you can go back to school, finish your degree, and go get a real job. First, that was 30, 40 years ago. <laughs> still now. waiting. <laughs> still waiting. So, well, that actually brings me right to my next question: Is uh, in the book you said, "quote uh, It never occurred to you that this could be a career." So, what did you want to be when you grew up? Well, you know, I, this happened before I could really make that decision. You know, I I knew the things that were sort of the family railroad pushing towards, but I also knew I really wasn't that interested in them. You know, so my, you know, my father had multiple doctorate degrees and became an astronaut. My mother has multiple master's degrees. My eldest brother became literally a doctor. My next older brother, who became my business partner, has multiple master's degrees. Uh, almost everybody in engineering or science. And so I was going into engineering and science. So I was pursuing that as sort of the expectation. Family legacy. Family legacy. <laughs> Just this is what you do. But, but, you know, I was already the third of four kids, and my brothers that were ahead of me were, you know, were, you know track stars winning track medals, were straight-A students. And I was not. I not only had no interest in competing at sports at that level, even if I could have, uh, it just, uh, I just didn't want to have that pressure. Uh, and the same thing was true for academics. I just was not interested in having a letter grade. And yeah. so I did not get particularly good scores in school. But what I did do in school is, uh, and this one that I give my mother credit for, starting my kindergarten year in school, uh, our, our school system did, our school system did uh, science fairs, for, you know, uh, local and district and all the way up to nationals, internationals. And my mother took me out in the backyard in kindergarten and had me follow around this wasp called the cicada killer. And we watched it go and catch a cicada. And we watched it take it to its underground burrow and lay eggs on it. And we dug up the burrow and put it in a little terrarium where we could see half glass through it. And we watched the babies emerge and eat the living but paralyzed cicada and then emerge as full-size cicada killer wasps. And that became my kindergarten science fair project. Wow, you're, you're five at that five. point. <laughs> hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. And by the way, my, my daughter's about to be five, and I'm going to find like, how I can I beat this? I have a five-year-old now, and that's, that's I'm going, blowing how can my I mind. Beat this? My, mother, my mother gave me the, that was like the best gift ever. Because not only did I, of course, I really knew that down. I mean, I, was, I loved it. I knew it. I presented it well. Won first place. But I won first place in basically, not quite literally, but almost every science fair after that. 
So even though my grades were B's and C's. That was a catalyst for you, basically. Science fair, I rocked. So yeah. independent projects, I rocked. And that all the way up to when my first schools had teletypes, they knew that I could do this on my own. I didn't need a teacher. I didn't need assignments. I didn't need a career. They let me have my own classrooms to just study myself mm. and do my own projects all the way through school. That's great. I mean, that's to, for them to, to recognize that and, and just afford you the, right. the freedom to yeah. so continue that became, to better yourself. That, so that independent study path sort of became my path starting very early. So you do, you know, you're becoming more successful at games and uh, you end up, you build a, a, a big beautiful house in Austin with, with secret rooms and all kinds of crazy stuff in it. Mm-hmm. Was that sort of always, uh, is, that like, is that just sort of, is that the five-year-old sort of dream coming true there? Like, I'm going to build a cool house. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. So what's funny is um, only after I built that house did I find this manila envelope. I'm also a pack rat. I've kept every scrap of paper that I've ever put any design of anything on. But uh, that's so many stacks of paper that I never refer to most of them, and I don't know where, what, what's in most of those stacks. Yeah. I'm sort of a hoarder, but with enough room to <laughs> store it. So it's not hoarding. So, yeah, so it, it doesn't count as hoarding if it's on an organized shelf <laughs> in a warehouse, I think. And, uh, but after I built that house, I found this uh, design for my dream house, which was basically what I built. I mean, it, 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 you know, observatory on the top, secret passageways, dungeon underneath, you know, uh, indoor pool with a waterfall and a cave. You know, all these things were on that list. And uh, so, uh, so, yeah, that was definitely my uh, childhood man cave, you know, design that I eventually manifested. That's so awesome. In fact, uh, and then you, you wrote it, you write another, another one of the, I, the thing I was probably the most surprised about <coughs> with your book is that it wasn't just about video game design or, you know, video game development or, or space. It's, you have a bunch of just, you've, you've had a, a life with all kinds of crazy cool stories. One of them that I wanted to ask you about is, uh, a man broke into your house, into this house at night while you were asleep at one point. You heard him. You get up. You call the police. Uh, and you've, it's Texas. You've got mm-hmm. some weapons in the house. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, a, and the police told you, you have an Uzi, mm-hmm. an Uzi, which is like, to me, you know, that's like a video game weapon. You know? Right. But you've got one in, so you're on the phone with the police and they told you, you could shoot him with the Uzi. Yeah, well, they told him if he, they told you if he moves, go okay, ahead. And, I'll, I'll back well, up. Please, I'll, give, please. I'll, give, I'll give the story. So uh, let me <laughs> fill in a few gaps. So I'm sure all of you can remember the night the comet Shoemaker Levy crashed into Jupiter. And most people won't remember that, of course, but I do, uh, because that night, uh, well, 15, 20 years ago, there was a comet that broke up into nine pieces, crashed into Jupiter, made these dark spots on it. This comet was called Shoemaker Levy. That night is one of the rare nights to use your telescope and look up and see Jupiter. I invited some friends over. They, we watched the little black spots. They all went home. But after they go home, which was 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening, I left my front gates open, which was unusual. And my house is darkened because we use the telescope, sure. which is unusual. And then at midnight, after I'm alone, at home alone, in bed, somebody knocks on the door. And so my first thought is, this is somebody who's coming to my, my stargazing party late. Oh. And so I go to the window uh, you know, with a bathrobe and my underwear, and I look out the window to see if it's somebody I recognize. So I want to want to see if I want to go down and answer the door, and I and I don't recognize who they are. And they're somebody wearing a um, baseball cap and a Rolling Stones T-shirt and uh, uh, shorts and shoes, shoes and and so I'm going like, okay, well, I don't know them, so now I'm really not going to go answer the door. I eventually try to get them to leave, and one of the things I do to try to get them to leave is close the front gates, which I can do from a remote. And they appear to leave. They go to the front edge of my property, hop the fence. I watch for another 10 minutes. I assume they're gone. Three o'clock in the morning, crash of breaking glass. So I'm going, ah, oh, 
This person's been casing my house for three hours. They're yeah. here to rob it. If I just go make some noise, they'll probably take off running. And I go to a window where I can see where they've just thrown this rock through my window and they're about to enter the house. And I go to bang on the window and smash. I break the window, which means I can now talk to them. And yeah. I say, get the F word out of my house. They look up at me. We make eye contact. And then he continues into my house. That's a little creepy and terrifying at that point. <clears throat> and so I'm now going, okay, this is serious. Um, uh, I'm 15 minutes out of town, so I know it's going to be a while before the police can get there. But I call the police. I go to find a gun. And my house is full of weapons and armor. Swords, crossbows, armor, and guns are in my house. And I've never thought of any of them as home defense. They're just part of the pantheon of cool collectibles. Yeah. But I now need to find a gun that I have ammunition for. And the only reason I ended up with Newsy was purely by chance. It was just the first match that I found <laughs> of something I could reliably load. And then I'm sitting here you know, at the door to the master bedroom with the police saying, well, this guy knows that I'm talking to you. You can hear me probably right now as I'm having this conversation. What do I do? Because, because it's gonna be 50, you just told me it's going to be 15 minutes before you can be there. Yeah. And they said, Mr. Garriott, if this man is in your house and you feel threatened, you can shoot him. Not, not you can. You shoot him. He's in your house. You feel threatened. You shoot him. I was like, okay. Uh, I then hear him still downstairs, and he's like talking to somebody. So now I think maybe there's multiple people in my house. I go to the top of the stairs. He eventually starts walking up the stairs, and maybe maybe two to three arm lengths away, he looks up at me, makes eye contact while I have a loaded gun aiming at his face, and I say, stop or I'll shoot. He stops. We stare at each other for five minutes, and then he kind of shrugs his shoulders and begins to move around the house again. And at this point, now you have the thing of like, what do you do? What do you do yeah, at this are, moment? I mean, are you, are you just in your head contemplating the ramifications of what happens if you act? It, it, didn't, it didn't even cross my mind that anybody would be stupid enough to not hold still when you're staring at them with, <laughs> at gunpoint in your, in your house. And so you make one of these split-second decisions, which, you know, I did not shoot him, but I also thought, you know, it's important he knows I'm willing to pull the trigger on this because there actually might be other people in my house. And so I literally just aimed just a few inches away from his head and pulled the trigger, which means I could have hit him. Yeah. And uh, put a hole through my house. But uh, he didn't seem to notice at all. He didn't, he didn't flinch. Wow. He didn't stop. He just turned around and went back down and started crawling around in my house again. And, of course, the police are on the phone still, so they're freaking out. It takes them another five minutes to get there. They come. I have to go downstairs let them in the front door because he broke in the back. Uh, they come in, find him... Uh, I didn't mention that the guy that I shot at was not wearing a hat or shirt or shoes. Oh. Uh, which is why I thought there might be multiple people. But it turns out it was just him. Huh. He had taken off his hat and shirt and shoes. <laughs> and he was found sitting on the edge of my guest bedroom, uh, on a guest bed. They threw him on the ground, handcuffed him, told me to guard him with my Uzi. And if he moved, shoot him. Uh, and by the way, at that point, I would have shot him if he moved. Uh, there was no one else in the house. Please sit him up and start to talk to him. Who are you and why are you here in Mr. Garriott's house? It turns out he's a fan. And Some way so, of showing it. And so he, but he's a crazy fan, literally crazy. Yeah. He believed or claimed he saw a hologram of Lord British over my house beckoning to him to come and receive his reward for completing his quest. And that once he got into my house, he was trapped, that I had trapped him in the house. And he was really trying to get out. And uh, so the police obviously got that he was a bit crazy. And uh, so they hauled him off to jail, and he went out of jail for a couple of years. And then uh, a few years later made the news one last time when it turns out, he, again, showing that he's crazy, he went to SeaWorld in Florida where he snuck in one night, 
jumped into the killer whale tank and was killed by Talikum the killer whale. Jeez. And that killer whale had previously killed a trainer and after that killed another trainer. So that, that and, and that, by the way, that, that same killer whale just died like a month ago. So Talikum, of the star of a movie called Blackfish that was running on CNN most recently, yep. that story is also about the guy who broke into my house and is you know, one of my favorite stories to tell uh, about uh, home defense. That's, I can't even, I mean, are you kind of, uh, did you ever feel like your life was in danger during that? Oh yeah, absolutely. But not because I was directly threatened. I mean, that is, uh, but, but it, was, it was hard to sleep for I months so, after yeah. that. Uh, and, you know, I did things like went and got a concealed carry permit after that. And I was like, I've since then let it lapse. But, you know, there were, I went through a period of time of, of, of thinking of home security and weapons in a very different way, a way I had never had before and fortunately don't feel that way anymore about. But, uh, but that was a, uh, it was a scare. All right, so uh, let's shift gears again. I want to talk specifically about Ultima Online because it's, I mean, the, the Ultima series, the pioneering role-playing series, uh, they were, obviously, they've all been enormously successful and, and they're revered. But Ultima Online... Uh, particularly, is 1997, if memory serves yep. correctly, changed everything. And and uh, there was another game. There was uh, there was a game called Meridian 59, which there there have been things called uh, for for muds. All, yeah, all all of us old guys. I I've, I remember them well as too. Multi-user dungeons, muds, but but uh, those were mostly text-based, right? And so it's Ultima Online, along with this other one, Meridian 59, uh, were kind of the first real big deal graphical, massively multiplayer online games. Uh, but you're telling me that before we came in here, EA didn't even really want you to make the game. Yeah, well, Your publisher, your slash owner at the time. Yeah, exactly. And well, uh, yeah, well, so here's how that sort of happened. So even early in Ultimas, even before Ultimas, if you go back to teletypes, there were multiplayer games on teletypes. I mean, as long as people have had computers, and especially when they had acoustic modems, which is how most of them started, was a teletype with an acoustic modem to a central computer somewhere, people have been making these multiplayer games, and including multiplayer uh, dungeons or role-playing games. So the concept was n- by no means new to the world or even to us as game designers, yeah. the, my team, me and my team. And so we had always wanted to make what we used to pin, uh, our pin name for it was Multima, Multiplayer Ultima. <laughs> And every year we'd think about making Multima. But every year we'd look at the market and we decided it was not time. We really couldn't do it. And the reason why we'd say we couldn't do it, it was not technical, it was a market reason. We sat back and said, look, you know, there were already these games on uh, that Genie and, and Kesmai was making for Genie uh, and AOL. Uh, a lot of these, uh, probably the biggest of that period would probably be like Air Warriors. And these were games where people, when they were playing them, were still paying often is not by the minute for connection time. So they're very expensive to play and therefore uh, and had very low bandwidth. And so the combination of low performance, high cost, meant you really couldn't do much of a game. And so I couldn't do a frontline Ultima with that kind of market and technical restriction. Yeah. But then we saw the Internet starting to happen. And it was Starlong and myself who were looking at this saying, now's the time. This is the moment where access to the internet has become ubiquitous, machine power is now strong enough, there will be a market for it, let's, let's go make Multima. And the way EA probably still does, or at least they did at the time, green lights a game is they have you know, twice a year or so 
these sessions where anybody who wants to kick off a new game can come and pitch it. And that pitch means put together a proposal. That proposal not only describes the game, it describes what technology is needed, it describes what marketing you want for it. You hand that to a sales department who gives you an estimate of the lifetime sales. Mm -hmm. If those lifetime sales justify the expense in the game, then sure, let's greenlight it. But the way they determine that is with comparables. Well, there are no comparables. There are none, yeah. There's none. <clears throat> and the closest comparables are things like that have been working on you know, these dial-up bulletin board services, which have had a maximum of about 5,000 users. And, uh, and the, the largest sales of anything they could even find out there to kind of rationalize a comparison with, uh, they said, look, it might have like 15,000 sales. And let's suppose because it's Ultima, we double that. We'll give you 30,000 yeah. sales. Well, 30,000 doesn't justify any amount of investment in product <laughs> development from the EA standpoint. So they were like, no, you can't do it. So we went home, hat in hand, going like, well, we think they're wrong. We came back six months later. It's more obvious the Internet's a thing. We say, you know that game we talked about last year? We're here to tell you again this year. The data is proving the Internet's a thing. You should really let us go do this. Second time, thank you, no, we're not interested. We come back a third time, and this is now one year later. It's probably what, maybe 94, 95 at this point, I guess. Something like that. And we come back for the third time, and for the third time, we're told no. But then I actually stop, and I, I literally, I say, and Larry Probst was president of EA at the time, and I said, Larry, you know, we at Origin, we're spending, you know, five or ten million making the next Ultima, five or ten making the next Wing Commander, five or ten making these three other games. You're just wrong on this. You need to give me $250,000 to prove this. Please, and I, I had, took a piece of paper, and I said, you, you know, this gives Richard Gary the right to go over budget within his development team by $250,000 to prove this Ultima Online thing. I said, just give me $250,000. And he was like, wow, okay. Signed the piece of paper, <laughs> sent, me, sent me away. And so that's, that's how we started the product. And when we started it, it was also funny to see what happened development-wise. Because you know, whenever a new employee uh, potentially came in the door, all the teams that might want them would fight over them. And so, like, if it was a super hot programmer or artist, you know, this was the time when Wing Commander was our best-selling game. Yeah. So Wing Commander usually could find an excuse <laughs> why they really needed that person. Well, the bottom of the heap was Ultima Online. And so Ultima Online was only allowed to hire people who were real specialists. Like, if, if we hired a multi-user dungeon builder, the other teams didn't care. So <laughs> we could get those people. But it also meant all the best office space went to other teams. All the obviously hotshot programmers and artists went to other teams. So we sat down and developed this little... You know, okay, we are Ultima Online, man. We're going to make this thing happen by hook or by crook. And we spent our 250000 and basically got to a, a playable demo. And then realized we had a new problem, which was how do we get people to see it? Because the Internet was still so slow, you couldn't <laughs> download it. It was too big to download. Which means if anybody wanted to help us test it or prove it, we had to send them a CD, which cost, you know, five bucks to just manufacture and mail yep. it. And so we thought, well, what are we going to do now? And so we actually put up what was basically, uh, and I think it might have actually been EA's first website. But if it wasn't the literal first, it was basically amongst the first. And it basically was, hey, everybody, we're the Ultima Online team. We're creating this Ultima Online thing. How would you like to come help us beta test it? But you have to pay us five dollars for the privilege of beta testing. I did. Because we need to. I remember getting my disc in the mail. Well, that first website. Within its first you know, weeks or month, I don't remember what the period of time was, 50,000 people 
<laughs> signed up to pay us five dollars to get that CD. And they were they were generously giving you thirty thousand as a as an estimate of as an estimate for lifetime. <laughs> yeah, life lifetime. <laughs> and so so immediately that moment that day was the day that the world changed around Origin EA, uh, <laughs> and especially for Ultima Online. It went from being the bastard stepchild that no one in the company wanted, period. It was only happening because Richard Garriott was a jerk enough to stand up and stomp his feet and hold his breath until they let him do it. And now suddenly became the most important thing happening in EA worldwide. Not only did the money coffers open, but frankly then all these managers from EA transplanted themselves to Origin to help out. And, uh, Sycophants uh, lining up to... <laughs> so it actually, piece. we had the opposite problem. Now it was like, thank you for your help, but please <laughs> stay away. And, uh, uh, and but it obviously, when it, and when it did ship, actually, when it shipped, uh, whatever time it was later, it became the fastest selling PC game in Origin and EA history for that moment in time. And so you could probably do no wrong at EA for, at that, in that window of time. You, you might like to think so, but <laughs> as it turns out, not true uh, for interesting reasons. Um, you know, people, what we, what we suggested that the company does right after we launched Ultima Online is we said, we need to take Wing Commander and do Wing Commander Online. And EA then said, you know, Ultima Online did great, but we think that most likely it's because Ultima has a 20-year history and a 20-year fan base who you're building on top of. And Wing Commander was brand new at the time. Mm -hmm. And they still weren't sure online games were a thing of their own. They thought Ultima Online might have been unique. And so they thought, no, you should start right now with Ultima Online 2. And we said, but wait, if we start Ultima Online 2 right now, we're chasing Ultima Online 1's feature set that is just getting started. <laughs> and it's going to, therefore, every time they add a feature, we have to add a feature. And so it will basically take forever. And we really should be doing Wing Commander Online. And we'd already started spinning up Wing Commander Online. Yeah. But we were told no. The, when they kiboshed that, the Wing Commander Online team left and went to Sony to make Star Wars Galaxies. And the, uh, and the Ultima Online team, which did go to Ultima Online 2, after two or three years, EA went, you know, this is going to take forever because we're chasing the feature set of Ultima Online 1 and canceled it, which is what we told you. And so uh, that was sort of the end of our time with EA. Oh, so man. it was actually both the, the, the peak and the end. So, uh, yeah, we'll get to the EA drama in a little bit here, but I wanted to, I mean, it's, I believe this year marks 20 years for Ultima Online, yeah, yeah. and it, uh, it's still going. Ultima, oh, yeah. It's still going. So, uh, number one, would you, would, could you have ever imagined it would still be up 20 years later? And uh, number two, I'm curious, do you ever, do you ever log into it? Is, does, uh, does EA have the, the kindness to allow you to still be Lord British and be the omnipotent uh, presence in the game. Well, yeah. So, well, first of all, for the first part of your question is, do I imagine it would last as long? Of course not. I mean, we had no idea that it would, would last. Uh, obviously, I'm very proud that it has, pleased and proud that it has last. Of course. And, you know, part of my exit of EA was to separate, you know, or even part of my joining of EA was to separate what they purchased with Origin was the trademark Ultima. What they could not purchase was my pen name, Lord British. And so when I left EA, Lord British officially left Ultima. Uh, but we have had an agreement, which is, you know, anytime they want to use Lord British, they can just contact me. And by the way, I've always been happy to be back. So, yeah. so I, I go back, you know, once a year or so to maybe once every couple of years nowadays to uh, play an official Ultima online. And there's also all these gray shards, these, you know, you know uh, side servers that people run of their own that have kind of reverse engineered the code base. Uh, and I go visit those too with That's some regularity. Cool. So, so I'm not a stranger to Ultima Online. I, I go when asked. 
uh, and uh, uh, but uh, but yeah, one of the that's kind of one of the cool things about the communities. They're all still together playing. Yeah, I got to figure anybody that's still in there now really cares and is invested in in what's going on. In, in well, yeah, you know what's interesting is uh, one of the early ones, uh, uh, the uh, Ash Asheron's Call, uh, just folded its doors after almost 20 years, uh, just last month, and. So the first thing we thought is, since we're developing Stride of the Avatar, we thought, oh, we should, we should invite those people to come join us. You know, they've they've lost to this big long-term world. We're big into these long-term communities. Yeah. You know, let's go let's go look up Asheron's Call and let's see what we can do to help have, help them find a home here sure. in Stride of the Avatar. And so you go look at their graphics and things. You look at the videos of people playing, and you're going like, wow, times twenty years is twenty years has been a long time in games because you, know, you and the same thing I'm true for people who look at Ultima Online. I'm I'm just more used to seeing it on a more regular basis. But uh, yeah, these these games uh, that are twenty years old look twenty years old, and uh, uh, so but but it's amazing that they've, they've survived this long. In your book, you you talk about witnessing uh, player marriages in Ultima Online. Uh, there's an infamous story which I remember from back in the day of Lord British getting murdered, yes. uh, which wasn't supposed to happen because you were supposed to be immortal. Immortal. Uh, what are what are your fondest memories of the Ultima Online project and of of that world? Well, I think there are a couple stories that would be uh, amongst my favorites would be to realize, you know, once we launched it, you know, it's sort of like you, you, you build this hypothetical world, you and your team of friends build an entire world with no real players in it, right? So yeah. every shop we built, every price we set, every all the plumbing, tax rates, we set it all. And then you invite in a million people and they show up. <laughs> Well, you know, what are the odds the tax rate will be right or there won't be potholes or the water will turn on and off in the faucets? The answer is pretty low. I mean, the probability of it working well is low. And, in fact, it didn't. So it was, it was very broken upon launch. And, uh, and one of the first things is we're here scrambling to get, catch up with stuff. We realize that people are both really upset and really passionate about being there. You know, if they if they were upset enough, they could just quit and go away and go yeah. somewhere else. But these people weren't quitting and going away. They cared. They cared. They were in the game, protesting in the game. <laughs> and so we're going like, that's really an interesting behavior because by protesting in the game, you're actually making the game play quality worse. <laughs> and but then we began to support them. And so like we, Lord British's Castle was usually locked up unless I was there to do something with it. But we like they wanted to protest Lord British's Castle, so we opened the you know our QA people opened the doors for them. So they all had a drunken, violent, you know. <laughs> uh, vulgar uh, time protesting and vomiting all over the floor of Warburg's <laughs> castle to complain about how poor the quality was when a bunch of people get together in one room and bring the servers to its knees. So we, we let them express their discontent within the game. That was one kind of interesting thing to realize about how passionate people were about it. But another one came when I, I would, in those early days, I would often walk around invisibly and just watch how people were playing it just so I could understand this phenomenon myself just yeah. from observing it. And there was a fisherman out fishing on a coast and, uh, and he would catch a fish and set it down and catch another fish set it down and that's all he was doing and I'm just invisibly hanging out here watching mm -hmm. and suddenly comes this knight who's you know wearing plate armor and has big weapons and all stuff and he walks by and and speaking in a role play voice in text you know he goes oh poor fisherman you know I see you're without sword and shield you know I am a powerful knight and I'm just returning from a bountiful expedition here, let me let me provide you some th th some things to better take care of yourself. Yeah. And he sets down on the ground, you know, like a helmet and a shield and some plate mail. And the fisherman goes, "Be gone, you ruffian! Be gone, be gone!" <laughs> he said, "What makes you think I'm interested in your weapons of war?" He said, "I am a fisherman. 
I come out here in the morning with my straw hat and my short pants and I sit here in this lovely weather and catch fish and in the evening I go back into town where I sell my fish and with the bit of money that I've earned, I sit and have a few drinks in the pub and share stories with my friends. So, be gone! And the guy goes, picks up his stuff and trundles off. And, and I, was, I just was shocked. At, for, I, I was just so struck by that moment to realize how deeply people were role-playing. Yeah, that's were, all that player wanted out of the game. And they both, they both were role-playing so well. Yeah. And, and these role-playing stories just happen all over the place and even included the player-versus-player, player, uh, PK or player-killer kinds of... The, these, these terms and common debates started really with Ultima Online <laughs> and the Wild West uh, that emerged... Uh, when you created such a, a monstrosity that Ultima Online was in its <laughs> early days. So, uh, unfortunately, though, with Origin owned by EA, it ended. It did not end well. You were you were uh, asked to leave EA at one point, uh, and then you had to sit out for a year on a non-compete clause. Right. Did. Do you just spend a year simmering, or do you spend a year plotting revenge for... Oh, no, 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 yeah. So, <laughs> well, the, uh, the actual agreement was that I couldn't for one year go work for a currently existing competitor. And so I could have actually gone to make another startup okay. right away. And in fact, the night that I departed drinking heavily with friends, I went and secured the, uh, the web address destinationgames.com. So that same night, <laughs> we sort of set up the next company. However, or origin to destination, destination. yes, exactly. And uh, but but you know, by the way, I'd already been doing this twenty years. That was you know half my career ago now. And uh, having already done this for twenty years, it was a perfectly good time to reflect. And so I actually did sit out most of that next year, not because I had to, but just because it was the right time yeah. to take a little break, uh, take a little sabbatical. Uh, but as that year was coming up, and that year was, even though, I did, even though I could have put it together more quickly, it was sort of the marker that it had been set. And so six months prior to that year being up, I began to talk to all the old teams. Some of them had gone to other companies. Some were still with EA. We began to talk about, hey, what are we going to do? Are we going to do this Destination Games thing? We began to put people together. And then this very interesting thing happened. Which is that you know my brother and I, who were the co-founders of Origin, we both decided we'd put a couple million bucks in the bank to start up Destination Games. We'd identified the thirty or forty people we'd want to have as our first hires, and then literally the week we announced it, so on my one-year anniversary, which is when we were announcing Destination Games' existence, yeah. EA lays off the rest of Origin. Well, it's great for you, <laughs> right? So we're sitting there going, "You just gave me back the company." that I previously sold you. You just literally handed it to me <laughs> on the day that I'm announcing my new company. So we called up all those people and said, that's actually a bigger company than we need right now because we don't need sales and marketing and QA and customer service because we don't need products. Sure. We said, however, as a company, uh, as a totality, our value is greater than any of us as individuals. So please come join us and we will begin Destination Games but begin immediately looking for a partner who can make use of all these other aspects of the company. And within two weeks of announcing our existence, we got a call from NCSoft. And NCSoft had made this game Lineage in Korea, which had gone way bigger than Ultima Online had ever gone, but was built in homage of Ultima Online. <laughs> the creator of that had lived in L.A. since he created it, trying to get it, trying to find somebody to support it in the United States, yeah. and no one would talk to him because he 
Didn't, you know, different he, market. Different, That's different, different market. World. Yeah, so he was making no progress. They had lots of money, but no American developers were willing to work with him yet because, again, it's just some alien Korean company as far as Americans knew. And we said, well, come talk to us. And so literally on meeting number one, we decided to you know, uh, uh, fold into NCSoft. And so I basically got to sell the same company twice. So I sold the first <laughs> Origin to Electronic Arts. They gave it back to me, and I got to sell it again to NCSoft. Uh, yeah, and the and then uh, after you did work on Lineage, you you started you made uh, Tabula Rasa, mm-hmm. and uh, and that went went for a while and went well. But I, I'm kind of curious, what was it like leaving Ultima behind, both uh, legally and creatively as well? You know, this thing that you'd <coughs> created and, and been with for 20 or so years at that point. Yeah, you know what's what's interesting about that, and I, I even still feel that to, to this day. You know. Uh, Starting with you know the first Ultimas, Calabeth Ultima One, Two, Three, those 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 are good games, but they really were just learning how to program, learning how to make a game. The first true original creation that I look back and go like, I am really proud of that moment, is Ultima Four, Quest of the Avatar, where I came up with the virtues and I began to uh, try to make my games more literary and also try to make them more original, more you know more my creations versus. Yeah plagiarizing from every other movie and book I've ever read. And, uh, and, uh, and so the, the work that I did from Ultima 4 through at least Ultima 7 uh, is still amongst the best work I've ever done. And so when I departed EA, I thought, okay, I can go start another fantasy role-playing. I can go start another medieval fantasy role-playing game right now. And if I do, it will be immediately compared to Ultima Online, or, or Ultima in general. Yeah. And I'm not sure I can beat it. I mean, you know, I'm not... I'm not sure I want to compete with myself yeah. in that way, which is why I said, let me do anything that's not medieval fantasy, anything other than medieval fantasy. And, uh, and so with, uh, you know, you mentioned Lineage and Tabula Rasa, but we also helped bring on Guild Wars. We also helped bring on City of Heroes and City of Villains. Uh, we also did uh, Auto Assault, a game for you know, car combat. Yeah, I remember that. And, uh, and so, you know, we, were, we and I were doing a, a wide variety of things. Um, but it's only now with Shroud of the Avatar that I've gotten, you know, now so much time has passed that, frankly, this generation of, of, of gamers, you know, is, uh, we've, we've got, you know, 80% of gamers are people who weren't born at the time of, of my earliest work. And so uh, I have really a whole new audience to uh, bring up to speed with the kind of games that I like to make. But before, I will get to Shroud of the Avatar, but first I have to ask you about uh, November 2008, you uh, you left <laughs> NCSoft, except you didn't. They forged a resignation letter, which I, I can confidently say that because in your book you note you, you were able to actually successfully sue them for a, a nice chunk of change because they, in fact, forged it. They, they pushed you out, but you had nothing to do with your departure. Right. How, how, I mean, it's... The, I've heard some interesting stories on this show, but uh, of especially of of corporate, um, let's say seasons. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but that one, what's even going through your head when you're like when you see this this letter from yourself? Yeah, so get published. Well, but 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 it actually has multiple levels because um, so first of all, before I even made my space trip, I actually. The first person I called was the president of NCSoft. And I said, I would like to go to space in three years. And because, but, but to do it, I have to sign up now. Right. And that means I have to start paying for it now. 
and I'm fixing a date in the future. And so I want to get your permission because I don't know what will be happening corporately three years from now. And so is that okay with you? And he said, yeah, that's fine. Go for it. Uh, and therefore, I started down this path. <clears throat> and so, and that's also why, you know, during my time as the space flight was getting planned, I began to do things like we did this uh, 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 Operation Immortality, this chip that we created with, we digitized lots of people's DNA, including the player base. Yeah. In the pictures I sent down from space, I included messages in the fictitious runic language, the logos language to players of Tabula Rasa. I was doing all these things to try to support the game and the company. In fact, on my spacesuit, I had an NCSoft logo on my spacesuit <laughs> and things for, for my trip. And so you can imagine my surprise when I am literally in quarantine, having returned from space. So I'm you're in Kazakhstan. I'm in uh, no, actually back in Moscow, back or in Moscow. outside Moscow in Star City, and I'm bedridden. So you mean if you can't stand up without getting dizzy and falling down? So you're like I'm 72 hours or so back from space, <laughs> and and I get a call from uh, one of the senior members of the U.S. team of NCSoft, uh, kind of a middle middle manager saying, hey, uh, you know, T.J. Kim, the president, has decided it's time to part ways. And I'm like, uh, right now? <laughs> I'm saying, can't this wait till I, like, get back home to you know, the United States, out of bed? And they're going, no, 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 right now. And I'm like, what, what is why? the, you know, A, why in total? But even, you know, yeah. it's, I work for you. It's your, it's your prerogative. If you don't want me to work for you, okay. But, you know, why can't you just wait two weeks for me to... <laughs> Get back home after this thing we all agreed that I was going to go do. And they were like, no, no, it's right now. And I said, we've already drafted this letter to announce your departure. And as with most letters, when an executive departs, it says departs to go do their own thing, right? It, yeah. it doesn't say you were fired. It says they go to do explore their own thing. Explore new opportunities. Go explore new opportunities. And so they sent me this generic letter that their PR team wrote uh, and, um, and said, you know, here's the letter we plan to release. And... It was like, well, you know, I can't stop you. You know, I'm, I work at your, at your leisure, so whatever. Uh, so so I'm, I'm expunged from the company. I come back to the United States. Then what the lawsuit is specifically about is they then tried to say that that letter, which supposedly I wrote, meant that by quitting versus being fired, they could no cancel stock. all my stock options. Which I then said, wait a minute, I didn't quit, you fired me. And they said, no, I didn't, we didn't fire you, see, the letter says you quit. <laughs> I'm going, no, 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 that's not how this works. And, uh, and they tried to say, oh, yeah, yeah, we would never have wanted to fire you, we actually loved you wow. as an employee. And I said, well, wait a minute, you actually did call me up and insist, and we actually took depositions from TJ Kim, their president, and this person who supposedly, you know, heard me call in from my sickbed to resign. Uh, and what's interesting is they had emailed each other, and so those emails are part of the record. And so the email record shows that TJ said, I'd like you to get Richard out of the company, and that's what he did. And then they put depositions you know, to their lawyers that said, no, we love Richard, we would never told him to leave. So they literally in court lied, Unreal. even to their own paper trail, which is why they lost the court case, is because there was fortunately a paper trail that shows exactly what they did. And so they lost in federal court first, and then they went up to the... Uh, uh, Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals where they lost also a, a second time. And what's interesting about going to court is, first of all, it's very scary going to court. I mean, I, I, I don't, you know, it, it was really no fun. And so despite well, the fact that, that I was victorious. Yeah, when there's that much money, not to mention probably your reputation is somewhat on the line there absolutely. too. Absolutely. So this was, you know, again, this was the 2008 market crash. So if this was basically 
wiping me out again. You know, uh, even with the stock options, it might not have been. At, at yeah. 2008, they were basically worth zero. You know, at the, at the time, so they were wiping out something that at that moment was worthless anyway. But um, but the uh, you know when you when you go into court, uh, you know you re- you realize very quickly that you know whoever has you know not only do you want the truth on your side, but you also need really good lawyers. And fortunately, I had really good lawyers. And uh, uh, but for example, when we went into the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, you know there's a, there's not a jury there. In this case, it's a three judge panel. And my lawyer said, Richard. You know, before we go into court, they will, those three judges will know this case. Don't doubt that they don't know every word. Also, when we're going to get 15 minutes to talk, they're going to get 15 minutes to talk, and that's the end of it. And they will challenge what either side says. Don't take that as a bias one way or the other. They, their job is to dispassionately challenge everything. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't, when you walk into this room, don't expect to believe you know how they're going to rule. So our guys got up to give their, our side. Judges listened and nodded and listened and nodded. No questions. It's like, that's interesting. The other side gets up, starts to uh, starts to make it, and they get challenged every single sol- everything, every line they say, they get challenged. And I'm going, I kind of feel how this is going. Oh, and if I got the order one, they went first, or we went second. At the end of ours, finally one of them just went, "That's a problem," and our lawyer stopped and said, "What's the problem?" He said, "Oh, not for you, for them." <laughs> <laughs> and so we walked out of the court of appeals, going, "Okay, we we knew we we're going to win this one," uh, but. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's very, very. It's a very, very expensive, very scary, very time-consuming uh, period of time that I, I wouldn't wish on anybody. Well, at least so you are vindicated, and now uh, we move to present day. Working on Shroud of the Avatar, which is it fair to call it something of a <coughs> spiritual successor to Ultima? It's that sort of. Oh, it's very fair. I mean, I, I use that. I use those <laughs> terms precisely. Uh, the uh, uh, you know, while uh, while there's nothing we've brought forward. You know, directly out of uh, Ultima intellectual property, um, it has the Lord British design guidance to it. So, you know, what, one of the things I think separates my game still from most games, most role-playing games, is you know, most role-playing games, most MMOs are uh, level-based. They're games where you start wimpy and you end up powerful. Yeah. The, there's a level-gated area of exploration where you have to become a higher level before you can continue to explore further into the world. And even if your character might have other roles like crafting, everyone who's playing is first and foremost a combatant that might also do crafting on the side. And in Ultima, the world itself is incredibly highly detailed. So every object you can see, you can interact with. Uh, if it looks like uh, something you should be able to open or close or operate, it will, look like, it will operate as you expect it or, we sh- or it shouldn't be in the game. Uh, and uh, while lots of people are combatants, there's also there's no level gating of the world. You can explore everything all at once. Yeah. And uh, uh, and there's tons of just role playing classes that really never get involved in combat. And so you can have a very rich life as a role player, even if you never engage in combat. Nice. And so uh, those truths, uh, plus stories about virtue as opposed to just about bad guys, uh, are uh, you know, sort of the core of, of what I like to put in, in our games and what we've done with Shroud of the Avatar. And it's been, uh, it's been, you've had a very sort of open development process. You've had players in for a while. Uh, when, when is sort of the, the finish line in sight for Shroud of the Avatar? Yeah, well, what's interesting about that is being an online game, and especially being a crowdfunded online game, you know, we are up to release 38. Uh, the just uh, uh, actually 39 launched today, uh, yesterday, yesterday, and um, and so for 39 months in a row, we have released on the third Thursday of the month, in exactly the same time, within plus or minus a minute, 
And for most of that 38 months, the servers have been live 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So anybody who wanted to has, you, you could say we're already commercially launched. We've been commercially launched since we had a, a room with a chair, a torch, and a chicken. We called it the chicken room. <laughs> since the chicken room, we have been live. That being said, last summer we went through a big milestone of persistence. So no one's character is being wiped. This summer, July, is sort of the first even, you know, even bigger deal, which is the story will be completed. You'll be able to actually start the game and finish the game, we believe, in July. Uh, yet, there will still be a few features and fine-tunings that may not really be where we want them in July. So sometime later in okay. the year, we might have yet another time we call it launch. So we, we sort of have three moments, last summer, this summer, and later this fall, uh, that are sort of our launch events. So uh, depending on who's asking or why they're asking, uh, <laughs> you know, we would advise them to wait for one of those milestones. So before I let you go, I have just a couple more quick questions because uh, I think it's not unfair to say you are a Hall of Fame caliber role-playing game designer. So I'm just curious, who, who do you look up to or admire in, mm. the, uh, in the game design world, either past or present? Uh, well, quite a bit. Like, so, uh, uh, well, it's interesting that even in, I would expand... I get most of my inspiration not from other role-playing games. I get them actually from other lines of uh, other areas of work. So Will Wright is uh, somebody whose work I've always admired. Uh, and for one reason is uh, the diversity of his creations. You know, I, I, I sort of feel like a one-trick pony in a sense. Of there's, I can do role-playing well, but I don't think it could make... And, and even there's some kinds of role-playing I don't think I'd do well. Um, you know, I could never have made World of Warcraft. The, the fine-tuning of the combat reward cycle that I see in Blizzard products is beyond what I do in my own. Uh, but, you know, I do these deep sandboxes with virtue stories in them, I think, pretty well. What people like Will does is, you know, he can invent whole new genres that are different from each other <laughs> during different periods of his life. And I just, I just, I don't have that skill. So I, so I, uh, uh, so I love to see what he does. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the uh, Doom Quake uh, series, another one that I find uh, inspirational. Uh, do you have you, do you do you talk to John uh, much over the years with Armadillo Space? With yeah, him, of course. You guys yeah, bond over space. Yeah, so exactly right. So uh, that, that uh, admittedly, I have a double soft spot for for John <laughs> uh, because of our mutual shared interests. Uh, and in fact, even with him, you know, not only the work he does with 3D, but let's just be moving over to the rockets. He, he's another person where. You know, it's hard enough to keep what you're doing in a game in your head. If you want to sit down and do rockets also, there's a whole other set of kind of math, shall we call it, that you have to keep in your head. Which is another reason I'm a real big admirer of uh, Elon Musk. You know, you sit down to Elon, you know, you know, I think I do the game parts pretty well, but I need a business partner. You know, I need my, my brother, although he's now retired, and you know, my wife's fortunately good at business, I have other partners who are good at business. I have to have a good business partner or I will put myself out of business. Yeah. Uh, you look at people like Elon, and he can not only do the business side, but also all the engineering, and not only of spaceships, but also of cars. <laughs> and and when you sit down and have a conversation with him, or I'll go back to Carmack in this case, you know they know those systems in incredible detail. They can not only tell you the decision they made, but why. And since this is also my passion, I can challenge them on it, and they can tell me why my thinking is kindergarten, you know, on, <laughs> on whatever my challenge is. And so, uh, but anyway, so yeah, there's, there's a wide variety of people and games I'm a big admirer of, but they're, but they're rarely directly in my own field. Where do you think the RPG genre is heading in the next five or ten years? Well, uh, I'll answer that by even saying where I think that all genres are headed. I, so, so one of my pessimisms about the gaming industry is a problem that is created by the success of the uh, increase in... 
uh, CPU power uh, due to Moore's law. The, you, you know, I, I look at the first thing I ever saw that inspired me. There's a little game called Escape. Escape with an exclamation point at the end of it. On a cassette tape for an Apple II. And it was a low-res block graphics game. There was nothing but it would draw a maze, drop you into it in sort of 3D, and you just had to get yourself out. That was it. And that's what inspired a Calabeth. And But it was sort of also like a first-person shooter in a way, except nothing to shoot. You know I mean? Just walk through it until you get out. Well, as technology improved, those graphics get better. The weapon variety gets better. The character classes get better. But what happens is that every time there's a new breakthrough, like uh, if you're going back to all the beginning, you know, a floppy disk, uh, the five and a quarter inch disk, the three and a half inch disk, hard drives, CD-ROM, uh, 3D hardware, the internet. Every time one of those things happens, the very best-selling games that exist during those radical moments of increase of power are simple first-person shooters that have really great bells and whistles that no one has ever seen before in gaming. And between those moments, to compete with the most recent giant first-person shooter, games need to become a little deeper. They go like, okay, it's not enough just to run around and shoot them in a maze. Now I need portals, or now I need med packs, or now I need a variety of weapons, or now I need character attributes, or now I need a conversation. But then as soon as we get over another big heap, heap, Gameplay simplifies again to hmm. being not very deep. That's my interpretation of, so far, the total history of games. And I see no reason for that to change as long as Moore's Law keeps making the bells and whistles so powerful each few, every few years. And so I think the majority of best-selling games are going to remain the you know, thinly, you know, a, a light role-playing placed on top of heavy first-person shooter technology. Uh, that being said, that's neither what I like to play personally nor what I like to create personally. I like to create something that I feel is a little bit deeper, has a little more story behind it, uh, that isn't as efficient. You know, the nice thing about a challenge reward game like World of Warcraft or other things that are level grindy yeah. is you make one system to where all I can do is make weapons get a little tougher, monsters get a little tougher, and I can make a system that lets you rise through your period of gameplay. You know, if you're going to try to do something where each plot point is a unique piece of code, it's no longer one system that gets harder. It's now 20 it's unique pieces of code, right. and, yeah, and, the, and the cost goes way up. So making deeper role-playing is more expensive and does not result in lots of new bells and whistles. Hmm. And so, uh, uh, so it's difficult, I think, for it to emerge with the same oomph as first-person shooter technology variants do. Uh, and so as a player, I'm, I'm always hoping for and pushing for and evangelizing for this deeper for... You know, uh, uh, we were uh, earlier today talking about um, games versus movies. You know, if it, when, when you look at movies, you know, most movies aren't quality. Most, most movies lose money. But amongst the pantheon of movies that make money is an incredible diversity of things that are documentary-like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, horror movies, adventure movies, and, and a large number of movies, in fact, whether or not they're horror, adventure, or anything else, the ones that speak to you deeply as a person, as a human, are often the most successful and the ones that you'll go, those will stand the test of 100 years of time. That will reflect on them and go, that was a great moment in history. Uh, games so far don't do that much. Games are mostly level up and kill monsters. And when they try to make a movie based on games, they still universally are pretty <laughs> terrible because there's not much meat on the game to really justify a particularly compelling story, I would argue, most of the, in most games. And, uh, and so games are not, literary, not particularly literary compared to movies and books yet. But that's when I think we'll come of age. When, uh, but, but that coming of age is still dependent on 
solving the Moore's Law problem. Solving how either we can let that continue and still make deeper games, yeah. which is happening some, uh, or there's a leveling, or, they, or, the games, or the machines become so powerful that's no longer the challenge. You know, right. Once the reality engine is so good that that's no longer the problem of making the game, so, I, so the really way to differentiate myself is to make a game that's deeper. Uh, but as long as bells and whistles are the thing that differentiates why I'm excited about the new game that I just saw an advertisement for on television, uh, that's our challenge. All right, well, until that technology curve flattens out, <laughs> we've got uh, Shroud of the Avatar to Indeed. look forward to. I mean, playable now if you're a backer mm-hmm. in the community. Uh, bigger release with the story coming up this summer, and then uh, sort of a maybe a little even more extra bell and whistly version uh, coming on a little later after that. And then the book is called Explore, Create uh, by Richard Garriott, who has been to space. He's been to the bottom of the, the sea. Uh, you've been to the, the depths of the role-playing genre. Yeah. And I had an absolute blast uh, speaking with you, Richard. So thank you so much for coming by. Uh, do check out the book, whether you're a fan of, uh, of video games or just good stories, good adventures. I had, a, I had a really good time reading this. I appreciate you sending the copy along ahead of time. Gave me some good grist for the interview here, right. some good, good stuff to talk to you about. So uh, Richard Garriott, uh, the game is Shroud of the Avatar. The book is Explore, Create. For much more from uh, the best, brightest, most fascinating minds in the games industry, such as Richard Garriott, be sure to stop by for a new episode of IGN Filtered each and every month. Hey folks, I'm Yen. And I'm Nat. And we're the hosts of Comic Sans, the podcast about comics for those who are sans knowledge. Comic Sans is a show for people who know nothing about comics, like me. And people who love them, like me, and want to learn more about them. What makes you an authority on comic books? I read them, write them, live them, breathe them. What makes you the authority on knowing nothing? Honestly, Yen, two seasons in, I actually know a little more than I used to. You're welcome. The reason for that is that every episode, I make Nat read one of my favorite comics, like Daredevil Saga or This One Summer. And then he tells me what makes that comic so special. And then I hear what Nat thinks, and I try to avoid a pulmonary embolism. While I actively try to give him one. You can listen to the second season of Comic Sans now. With new episodes every two weeks. Wherever you get your podcasts. You know, Yen, I think I know so much about comics now that this might have to be our last season. Nat, there will forever be more comic than you will ever know. What does that even mean? I don't know. It sounds profound, though. Right?